0: Hello my friends, welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode 107. My guest today is Wynne Collier. Wynne is the author of a brand new biography of Eugene Pearson, the translator of the message and author of a great many wonderful books. I had such a special time in this conversation with Wynne. It was really a beautiful, gentle, soulful discussion. I kind of felt like meeting Win was like meeting a kindred spirit. Wynne has been a pastor for many years. He was the founding pastor of All Souls Charlottesville in Virginia. He today is the director of the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination at Western Theological Seminary in Michigan. He holds a PhD from the University of Virginia and, and he's written a number of other books himself. So today we talked all about Eugene Peterson and who he was, his values, And there's a lot in here around the subject of ordinariness, of holy ordinariness, and I think an invitation for pastors to a holy simplicity in their work and so i think there's going to be something encouraging in here for you whoever you are i am loving this book and i recommend you guys go and get it check the show notes for links to buy the book to learn more about win and his work and of course for the transcript of this in text if you would prefer to read it there are a couple of audio glitches throughout this one we were having some internet connection difficulties my apologies for that the transcript is a little clearer if you you weren't sure what win was saying at any point go and check the transcript and I was able to type out the words that were missing. So, let's go. When I'm thrilled to welcome you to the podcast, Uh, thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you. I'm really glad to be here and to make a new friend.
0: Likewise, likewise. I have been reading the book, and I'm loving it, and it's, it's giving me all these memories of my own life, and so I thought I would I would set the stage for this conversation with with a memory of my own, where it's about, it's got to be 1994, and I am about eight years old, nine years old, and my grandfather was a, I guess what we used to call a lay minister, maybe we'll just call him bivocational now, uh, in the Presbyterian church, and he had this study off his bedroom, he was also an accountant. And so in his kind of office study, he had all of his financial stuff uh, for all of his clients and trusts and all charities that he worked with. And then he had all of his theological books. And he was the only person I knew who had a computer. My grandfather, even up until his death, always had the cutting edge technology. And I used to go and play on his old IBM computer before he had Windows. And I remember he had this book on his bookshelf, this white and blue book called The Message. And it stuck with me from like eight or nine years old. And often as I was waiting for games to load, (laughs) I would sit there and I would look through his bookshelf and there was this this book, this white and blue book. And And sometimes it would be up on the shelf and sometimes it would be on his desk. And I often used to look at it and I used to go, huh, the New Testament in in modern light, whatever, I forget the, the tagline that was on that for probably for probably the first edition of the New Testament um, that I realized in hindsight, he would have had, I guess, I guess he was reading all the new stuff as soon as it was coming out. And so it's felt really special to me to start reading Eugene's story uh, that you've so beautifully written. And... And I'm, I'm not not—I'm not a Eugene Peterson expert. I, I have not read any of his other works, and I haven't even thoroughly read the message. And I feel a bit embarrassed to say that. I feel like it's a missing piece of my life that I've kind of orbited from a distance. And so in a certain way, I feel really privileged that I get to actually really start my journey with his whole story, thanks to your writing A Burning in My Bones. So thank you.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I love that story. And um, as you're telling it, I'm thinking how much Eugene would love that story. Because, um, you know, um, one thing that I think a lot of people probably don't quite get because, you know, I don't know, 20 million copies or something were sold at The Message. and But he didn't write that for the vast American audience, really. He, he wrote that for his, his Sunday school class. It's how it started. Uh, he was a lot of fear was happening in the in the late '60s, early '70s, um, in the Baltimore suburbs, and he realized how overrun his own community was with fear, buying guns and building bomb shelters and escaping the the awful inner city. and And he just thought about how unchristian this was, and so he wanted to lead them through. Galatians because it's a book of freedom and we're we're to be free people not driven by fear and he was uh, mesmerized by the text of Galatians and yet he said after 3 weeks like people's eyes were glazing over they were bored out of their mind and he couldn't understand it like this this text is liberating and so he he said well next week I'm going to translate it in um so they lived in Hartford County, Maryland. I'm going to translate this into Hartford County. And um, and he said he passed out the, the white sheets of paper that had that little section translated for that week. And like nobody even touched their coffee. They were in. And he's like, I'm on to something. And so he kept doing that. And that ultimately made its way into a book he wrote in Galatians called Traveling Light. And at the beginning of each section, he would he would offer the little translation he had done and an editor eventually, um, saw the book, read the book, photocopied the pages and cut out the the scripture part and pasted them all together and carried them around for like a month, reading it and meditating on it and reflecting it. And ultimately very long story, but that's how he ended up writing the message. But, um, it was for very particular people it was mm. it was for these quiet spaces for people who were hungry and he was hungry too and he wanted to share a conversation about the living word and and even when it expanded and he realized he's writing this full translation that was going to hit the you know the market or whatever he would say you know i he he would have in mind that he was translating for the truck driver that he knew For someone who was sitting in the third pew, you know, and so all that to say, I think he would absolutely love just this individual story of one person, one grandfather, you sitting there really wanting to play a video game, and something catching your attention that you just carry with you. Um, Eugene was known for his smile, and I think he he would be smiling really big at that story.
0: (laughs) That's such a cool... Uh, road, you know, I there's this. I've heard Seth Godin talk about when we try to create something for the world, it doesn't work. But when we can allow ourselves to just authentically create something for one person, it it so increases the likelihood that it will connect with them. That that and then ironically, that tends to connect with other people far better anyway. Which sounds like the message is is a is a proof text for that.
1: Yeah, and I would say that was Eugene's kind of just who he was. Um, You know, he he meandered through a long wilderness of failures and rejections, and you know, he he was never pastor of a of a or be considered a large church, never he was just, and even toward the end of his life, when people would ask him, what do you, what are you most grateful for about your life? And one of the things he would say is, oh, that I got to be Eugene. Come on. And, you know, when you hear that and you can really like for a man to have lived his life and to have such deep gratitude that he just got to be the person God made him to be, um, because I think most of us actually spend massive amounts of our energy striving to be something we think we're supposed to be or some image. And I do think it takes a kind of humility and, and grace and just comfort with how God's made us to do the kind of thing you're talking about. Where we can we can offer the one gift we have for the one person in front of us, trusting that God will do something with that or not. <laughs> And it's not in our making. And I think that's one of the reasons why Eugene was so meaningful to so many people is because there was something that was deeply true about what he offered that felt like, you know, in a time when Christian publishing specifically was exploding, mm-hmm. the the money around it, the, the celebrity, the... The building of the platform, all the language, you know, um, he genuinely detested it and thought it was the kind of thing that puts a soul in mortal danger. Yeah. And so he actively resisted those things and and insisted over and over and over again, um, this has to be relational. It it has to be with the person in front of you. It has to start with your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you can't do theology without geography, he would say. Um, which means if you don't, if you don't live in your neighborhood, don't try saying anything to the world. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways, among other things, I mean, we're reaping the whirlwind now for, um, for not following those kinds of bits of wisdom. (laughs) Um, and so Yeah. There's a lot, a lot about his resistance to the temptations and seductions of our age that I think are truer now than they ever were. And it all comes back to this offering what you have, being true, trusting grace. God gets to control the ends, not us. When we start manipulating, it all turns sour. Um, it all, I think in literal ways turns to hell, you know, um, so be free, live open, be true, be
0: humble. Honestly, it's like so simple, but it is really countercultural to to what has become a very common understanding of what Christian life looks like in the West in the 21st century. Be extraordinary, be loud, be bold. Uh and and obviously, yes, let's be bold, but it's kind of like boldness has been interpreted to mean this outrageous extraordinariness. I this weekend I was reading a book called A Theology of the Ordinary by Julie Canless, and it mm-hmm. was just hitting me in the soul over and over again. And then I start reading your your biography of, of Eugene and the ordinariness, and you you talk about. Uh, used this line, a context of unspectacular ordinariness. And in that, Eugene learned to see it as holy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, I feel like Jonathan Puddle is learning to see that as holy in, in March 2021. Like, I feel like that is what the spirit is doing in me right now, which is probably partly why I feel like this is so timely. Tell us more about, about that, about the ordinariness.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm, I don't know if if you know this, maybe you do, or, but I think Julie would say that Eugene is probably the, one of the deepest influences in her life. Mm. Um, so he was her professor at Regent. And um, there's even a beautiful, a really beautiful story in the biography about an encounter she had with Eugene.
0: Okay. I haven't got there yet.
1: Yeah. Um, man, there's so much here. Um Jonathan, and yet it does, it feels, it feels like it's so simple that it, it could be heard in a cliche way. And there's nothing cliche about it because we're going to the deepest places of the soul. When someone asked me, uh, what was like at the heart of Eugene's vision, his pastoral vision, he, he, he fundamentally understood himself first as a pastor. So what, what was it? Why, what was, what was at the heart of it? And I, you know, maybe pause for a minute before I answer, because I'm thinking this is, this answer doesn't sound nearly deep enough. Um, it was, it was God, God, (laughs) the Holy. And, and, you know, maybe at first blush we say, well, Of course, he's a pastor. So give me the real stuff, you know? Um, And I think that exact thing is, is like penetrating to our, our core um, dilemma is we are overrun with God language. Um, God has become an industry. We are up to our eyeballs in God talk, in God trinkets, in God systems but our souls are impoverished. Mm. And so right now I'm actually reading, I'm trying to make sure I've read everything of Eugene's before the book comes out. (laughs) Um, And I'm not sure I have, or we'll make it, But I'm I'm close, but I realized I hadn't read a book called earth and altar. And I think it's actually out of print. It's one of his few books. It is out of print. And I may be wrong, but I, right now, it looks like it's out of print. Um, It's striking to me uh, that this book is out of print because it's all about how is a Christian to live in a political society? Mm. So most people who don't know Eugene very well would perhaps criticize him for being overly pietistic and, you know, um, maybe being such a contemplative that he sort of, isn't engaged with the world as he should, which is ridiculous. But, um, and this is a book where he's saying, how are we to live with political responsibilities as a faithful Christian in the world? But here's what he does. He takes 15 Psalms. And he says, what Christians do is pray. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on this mind, Extending, heart stretching, understanding of what is, mm. allow us to sort of fall into these dichotomies that say, okay, this means I have minutes, and I just stay for our leaders and move on. Prayer is integrating all of our life and our hopes and our our injustices and our dreams and our possibilities and our families and our neighborhoods and our economic systems and our vile histories and our possible futures and is bringing all of that before the holiness of God. And it is truly trusting and believing that we can be reshaped by a vision of the world that would so us that we begin to live as different people in a different way. And all of a sudden what he's really doing is what Christians who have been faithful for millennia have done, and they have said what to do is our life before God, and to actually believe that God makes us true humans, that God makes us just, that God makes us right with our neighbor, that God can redeem our, our shattered lives, that God can us good futures. But what Eugene continually insists is we're going to have to allow our visions and dreams of all these things to be reshaped by God rather than trying to make God fit into our preconceived ideas of what this looks. And why, back to your actual original question, why I think this is so difficult for us and why we resist the holy ordinary is because we are really addicted to control. <laughs> you know, um, if we, if there is a, if there is a world to win for Jesus, then we are going to figure out how to do it. Dang it! Um, if there is a um, a wrong to be fixed, then we think that it's our job to go figure that out. And then, kind of, ask God to um, bless us on our way, yeah. as opposed to coming to God and saying, "God, I don't know, I don't know how to fix this. I, I don't, I can't even hold up the hubris that I'm gonna um, see it all clearly." But I can say with desperation that I, I need you to transform our hearts collectively, all of us. To give up our power, our grasping, to learn what it is to truly love. And and all of that requires God. And all of that, um, it's actually much easier to think about the big picture out there and not think about the person I'm going to be with in the next hour or the paragraphs I've been given to write today or the fact that my son really needs my space and attention. And maybe some of my big things that I thought were gonna be the things that were gonna change the world aren't actually the thing that I'm called to be today.
0: Yeah. Yeah, seriously. Oh man, that resonates very deeply with me. It's yeah, I've been I've been chewing over this passage in John, you know, uh 1415, I think. Abide. John chapter 15, I believe, just abide in me. You can't do anything if you're not in me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm like, man, is abiding enough? Ugh, like so much of my formation would have me believe that abiding is not enough. That I need to go and be very effective for the gospel. Mm-hmm. And that somehow being effective for the gospel is... Uh, <laughs> counterintuitively divorced from abiding you know you 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 write about this barber shop that eugene would would visit that it was a rough and human place and that made it holy and i feel like with each 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 story (laughs) you're you're kind of like i feel feel like yeah you've got that uh, meat tenderizer and you're just kind of hammering this deeper into my soul um so, you know you, you write as well that, that Eugene would would search beyond the trite or the theoretical, that he was on a quest for things true and solid, that he uh, that he had a, more questions than answers, that, that he would rather pray with someone than, than debate theology. And yeah, I mean, I, I felt I felt convicted, I felt inspired and i felt like man i, I would like many of these things to be said about me 50 mm. 60 years from now
1: mhm yeah yeah me too i think that goes back to you know eugene never stopping uh, the son of a butcher um and to him that that space um where the whole town met, you know, um, it was a meeting place. It was, it was, it was dirty and gritty and there were the poor and the wealthy. And uh, there wasn't a lot of spe- in the butcher shop. Um, and he was around a, a, a rough crew that um, had dirty white aprons splotted with blood and let out expletives and, and yet told the truth and Um, and so, you know, he, he formed, he was formed in that, in that way. And, um, he always resisted this pull to, to be elite, you know, this pull to, um, amass power and he did, he distrusted it. And it wasn't because he just naturally pushed away from it. I think he felt the pull himself. Mm -hmm. Um, but he, he distrusted it. And, and yet he believed that everything that was truly spiritual is lived. And he was always resisting the way to push things into different uh, worlds. You know, we have a spiritual language and then we have the language when we're really with our friends and being honest. Or um, we have our spiritual time and then we have our the rest of our life right and he just kept saying no it's life um it's why he and he wasn't consistent about this but but yeah he didn't like using the word spiritual as an adjective mm-hmm. he thought he used it as an adjective inherently degrades something um mm-hmm. because you're specializing it a spiritual life it's life it's A spiritual book it's a book it's not a spiritual story it's a story you know yes. um and for being someone who had such opinions and convictions and sort of lived in a counter way, he also was not very idealistic. Mm. He thought church was massively overrun by Western idealism about, you know, so a lot of our programming and machinations and all this is all about living a sense of what we think the church is to look like. And we're, we're running after an ideal we're missing the actual people in front of us. We're missing the ordinary graces that are, we're encountering, and and then no wonder that we end up with these big And half the people are exhausted, um, and half the people uh, you know, are are sort of running on fumes. And 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 then we just wonder, like, what's happening here? Aren't we doing the stuff? And this stuff isn't what we were supposed to be doing to begin with.
0: Yeah. Wow. I mean i I grew up essentially out of the vineyard movement, so doing the stuff was very, very important, right? And and I have lots of good stuff in my DNA because of that influence. And and, and yet, yeah, uh, feel like there's certainly a course correction that I think the Spirit is inviting many of us to. Uh, that I think you've painted such a beautiful picture of surrounding Eugene's life. Can you fill in the gap for us about you and Eugene, your relationship and why you're the one bringing this story?
1: So in 1999, I was in Colorado, uh, a bivocational pastor at a small church. We'd gone there for my wife to go to grad school and an elder after church one Sunday handed me a copy of Eugene's, pastoral book called Working the Angles, The Shape of Pastoral Integrity. And he said, I think you'll enjoy this. I wrote. he meant was, I think you need this. <laughs> and uh, I got home and before Sunday afternoon nap, I, I started reading and just was only, I don't know, a couple paragraphs in and something just pierced me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure that I realized at the time how How much of a wanderer I was. How lost I
0: felt. We'll take a quick break so I can say thank you to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. My latest patrons are Anthony and Sophie. Thank you both for coming on. Such a blessing to have you here, and I hope that you are enjoying the B-sides and the other things you have access to as a patron. Friends, if you would like to chip into the show, you can do so for $3 a month or $30 a year, or more if you prefer. You can go to patreon.com slash and and sign up right there, you'll gain access to the B-Sides, which is my new thing. Every week I record a behind-the-scenes, kind of unpacking, greater-depth conversation with some friends of mine around the episode. And so, this week on the B-Side, I've got two of my favorite pastors, my own pastor, Amy Ryan, who's been on the podcast before, and one of my good, good friends, Mark Shelsky, who pastors outside of Portland. And the two of them and myself share thoughts of how this discussion with Wynne impacted us and challenged us. So, thank you so much to everyone who supports the show and my work. Much love. Back to the show.
1: Here I was doing pastoral work, called to this, and I did, and, I, and yet I just I was really disillusioned. I I didn't I didn't know anymore what the basics were of being a pastor, and and all of a sudden Eugene began to give a language and it was it was almost like my heart um, found a way to describe what it was aching for Mm. and so I started to read him a couple years later when I was publishing my first book uh, an editor who had worked with Eugene gave me his address I started writing him letters we wrote letters over 15 years or so Uh, met him on occasion um just a couple times really um in 2016 i was going back to montana for a pastoral retreat i was gonna see eugene and jan um it was gonna be a final time to see them i thought and asked them to pray a prayer of blessing over me which they did and and when i got back i was thinking about how someone was gonna write his story and i started i started thinking through what I hoped this story would be and how it would be and that it would, it, that it would, it would imbibe Eugene, not just give the facts and, and started thinking about what I hope it wouldn't do, like that it would really honor how he resisted lots of pressures and polarities and, um and let there be tensions where there's tensions and show the humanness where there's failings and, And so um, I wrote him a letter, told him my thoughts, knowing there's no way he is not interested in a biography being written about him. He called me back a couple of weeks later, we started talking. I just described it all to him again. And I said, so Eugene, does this make you energized or tired as I'm talking to you about this? And he, you know, in his raspy voice, he just said, "When it makes me tired. And I just chuckled and I said, well, that's what I figured. And, uh, so I thought the conversation would end, but for some reason we kept talking and I don't know why, uh, Holy spirit, I guess. And, and, um, about 10 minutes later, he said, when I think I'm energized now, I think you're supposed to do this and I'm going to help you. Um, so Jan and Eugene just really opened up their life, their home, um, spent, uh, a lot of time with them at the lake lugging boxes and boxes of journals and letters and manuscripts back to Virginia, where we lived at the time. And, uh, um, yeah, spent four years writing and doing scores of interviews and, um, here we are.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. That's really beautiful. Yeah. And then the number of pastors who I, who I know could put themselves into that state of your life as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, well what are some of the things that you hope uh, that people will will experience, encounter as they read?
1: You know, um, some of us have never had a, um, a real pastor. Um, thankfully, many of us have. There's so many good pastors out there and, most of them will never know their name because they're not building uh, a mausoleum to themselves they're out there doing the the work with the circle of people in their parish that they're to love and that's such a noble thing I, and I guess for for pastors like that I hope they would hear um, in powerful work that your work really matters okay. and don't listen to the siren calls that say if you're not known or publishing books or, you know, being asked to speak conferences that, that your work isn't important because most of that stuff is, um, smoke and mirrors. What you're doing is the real work. Um, I think for those who maybe never had a pastor, I I hope they would have a sense of an experience of what it's like to have a pastor in your life who isn't trying to use you, um, but who who loves God and loves you, and I think for everyone who reads, um, whether they're people of faith or people who are curious about faith, um, I hope they would encounter in in Eugene a a, um, a picture of what it might look like for a person to be becoming more and more holy and becoming more and more human at the same time, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: because those two things absolutely belong together. And it is one of the great, great tragedies of um, whatever has transpired in our modern discipleship life or theological understanding or whatever, that somehow these two things are separated. So we might not say they're separated, but, intuitively we feel like they are um so a lot of us you know maybe are perceived as having some kind of holiness but you scratch very deep and it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of humanness there it's uh it's stilted and plastic and and then there's other others of us that we might think oh they're really human you know like they're really free and um but you scratch too deep, you're like, "Ah, but where's the where's the holy? Where's the where's the sense that God is um, sometimes makes us tremble and is describing a kind of existence that we don't actually fully know yet, and this is mysterious and and in Eugene, I I see imperfectly and always growing, but I see those two things held together as they should be because, you know, in the incarnation, we learned that to become truly, truly human is to become more like God. Um, and, and somehow we've severed this and it's, it's disastrous. Um, and so, um, it probably means that our holiness is, um, is, 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 um, stunted if it's not, doesn't have deep humanity rooted into it. And it probably means our sense of humanity is also stunted if it doesn't have a deep sense of holiness rooted in it. So mm. I think, you know, one of the prayers that Eugene prayed, um, he only, the only place I ever heard this or seen this with him was when I opened up his journals. So never saw it in any other context. And that matters. It was something that was between him and God. Um, but the first time I read it in his journals, it, it brought tears to my eyes because um, because I knew that this was not something, I knew what he meant when he was saying it. And he said, God, make me a saint. And that was not coming from a place of make me some grandiose Christian, make me well known. You know, it, it was in the quietness of his own interior life with his God his deep cry of his heart that he would become so transfigured by the love of Christ that he would become the kind of human who was um, overflowing with the radiance of the love of God in a way that was so rooted in this world and Mm -hmm. giving himself with love to this world. Um, And he prayed that prayer repeatedly Um, early on. I, I had this short hope that we could incorporate that into the title, you know, um, to be a saint or something. But I knew we couldn't, frankly, because I knew it would be misunderstood and it would immediately be heard the wrong way. Um, But I hope that people will come to find in Eugene one story of one flawed man who truly was becoming more and more consumed by the presence and love of Christ.
0: Mm. Amen. That is a beautiful and holy work. And certainly, yeah, uh, in the reading that I've done so far, that's what's, it's just, it's capturing my imagination. It's capturing my hunger and passion. And, and, and I, I feel both transported because of the rich storytelling, but rooted to where I am. And I feel like I'm imagining Montana. I'm imagining Seattle. I can picture these places, but I'm also looking around at my living room and the Mm -hmm. glass of wine I've got and my children. And I'm going, this is good. Yeah, this is good. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I I wonder if you if you'd read us that that little introductory story. And that's so beautiful in the book.
1: Sure. A few minutes after 7 a.m., with sun streaming through her kitchen windows on a fresh Maryland day, Jan Peterson scooped hot eggs onto five plates next to scrapple and fried apple rings. Eric, she called. Go tell Dad breakfast is ready. Yes, ma'am, Eric answered. The oldest Peterson boy ran to the top of the stairs that led down to his father's home study and stopped short. His dad would be intensely focused and immersed in quiet. With a 9-year-old, with a 9-year-old's mischief, Eric tiptoed down. The basement smelled of must and old print. He stepped onto the chilly tiled floor and catwalked with a burglar's stealth to his dad's study door. Most days Eugene spent an hour before daybreak reading scripture and a second hour reading commentaries. A hand-me-down desk set under a single window beside a long bookshelf, packed to the ceiling. Its books were arranged mostly by author. Bart, Dostoevsky, Newman, Teresa Vavola. A rocking chair, the favorite seat for reading, sat in the corner. Fluorescent lights hung from the ceiling, but Eugene rarely flipped on the cold bulbs. A lamp on the desk shed a warmer glow. The old communion table from their church, Christ our King, set against the wall, holding a pottery chalice and paten ready for wine and bread. Alongside the Eucharist dishes set an Italian fiasco, long emptied of Chianti, holding a single white candle with a year's worth of wax splattered over the straw basket covering the dark glass. A monk's cell. Dad's space. Gene's space, Pastor Pete's space. Eric Eric turned the knob slowly, silently. He peered through the crack. And even now, Eric's eyes turn moist as he tells me the memory while we sit together. A small woven rug lay on the tile floor beside his dad's desk. Candlelight flickered from the wine bottle. Eugene rested on his knees with a tallet, the tasseled Jewish prayer shawl wrapped around his shoulders. A Hebrew psalter splayed in front of him. He rocked gently, engrossed in the world of the scriptures, surrendering to ancient prayers. Eric watched, hushed. He slowly closed the door and crept back upstairs to the clink of forks against plates only a boy but he knew he'd witnessed something holy
0: Thank you We it's beautiful mm-hmm. would you uh, would you pray for us
1: in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit God we bless you we bless you for this day we thank you for each person who has joined us in this conversation even if we don't know their name or see their face. God, would you fill them with your love? Would you be present with them in their questions? Would you whisper to them in their pain and shout to them in their joy? Maybe they know that you are true you reverberate in every corner of this world. That we might ignore you, but you cannot be missed. And that you are relentless. That you are always near. That you are never far away. And that our hearts and our minds and our imagination would open and receive all of the goodness and love that you are so ready and willing and eager to pour into us that we might know your light and be undone by your love and be remade as true humans. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, Wynn. Weren't you just touched by his gentle soul? I sure was. I've been uh, really enjoying following him on Instagram as well and getting to know him a little bit better. Go hit the show notes to find links to his social media to order this book. It is out now. A Burning In My Bones, the authorized biography of Eugene Peterson by Wynn Collier also my friends right now and just for a few more days my book you are enough is on sale on kindle for 99 cents it came out just over six months ago and to celebrate that fact i dropped the price way down as low as i could on amazon and so go grab that that'll be just a couple more days because i dropped the price on monday and i'm only going to keep it up there for a week so you need to head over to amazon right now search for you are enough by jonathan puddle and grab that for 99 cents while you can Now, if you want the text transcript for this show, you can go to JonathanPuddle.com, click on this podcast, and you'll be able to read the entirety of this podcast. That is thanks to my patrons who chipped in so that I could start providing these transcripts every week. I'm really glad to do that. And actually producing them each week, uh, I'm really enjoying it. Something about reading the words hits me differently than listening to them so uh, maybe maybe you will enjoy them also go check those out thank you so much for listening this week i'm glad that you're here share this with a friend if you enjoyed it you'll find me on social media at jonathan puddle look forward to connecting much grace and peace to you we'll talk soon